Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The writing had already failed, and he was a man on the run. He escaped with a price on his head, and he was wanted for treason. And when he arrived in the United States, he proudly and defiantly described himself a traitor to the British crown. The tragedy is that McGee had to leave Ireland, and if McGee had stayed and applied the same skills that he used in Canada, we might have had peace in Ireland much, much earlier. He was one of the rebels of 1848. The history of him written here is primarily focused on that and his escape. In Canada, if you asked ordinary Canadians, they would remember Thomas Darcy McGee primarily for the fact that he was the first Canadian politician ever assassinated. The Gulf is as wide as the Atlantic Ocean between how McGee is remembered in Ireland and how he's remembered in Canada. Revered in Canada, Ireland. One of two reactions, who are that traitor? Could they be talking about the same person? Thomas Darcy McGee's life was full of twists and turns. But who was he and how did he become so revered, hated, admired and forgotten all at the same time? His story starts in Carlingford, County Louth. He was born on the 13th of April 1825 on Dog Street in Carlingford. And when he was three he then moved towards Garantar. And when he was eight then he arrived in Wexford. Historian Anthony Russell is a member of the Thomas Darcy McGee Foundation and one of the organisers of the annual McGee Summer School in Carlingford. Much of this documentary was recorded during it. He was a precocious child. I mean that in a nice way. His schoolmaster described him as the best-loved and brightest scholar that he had. He had a happy childhood up until they were moving from Garantar down to Wexford and his mother, whom he loved dearly, was thrown from the coach and died. His father then remarried and after that he was so unhappy at home that at age 17 he migrated to Boston. Professor David Wilson is the leading authority on Thomas Darcy McGee and a regular contributor to the McGee Summer School. And on July 4th, 1842, the 17-year-old boy gave 
American Independence Day speech in which he made a passionate case uh, for Ireland to for, follow America's example. And this won him the immediate attention of the Boston Irish. They knew they had a star in the making. Uh, he very quickly started work with the Boston Pilot, the major Irish-American newspaper at the time. And by the age of 19, he'd become its editor, and he had already written his first two books. So he hit the ground running, and uh, for the rest of his American career, for the next three years, uh, he, he wrote hundreds of articles. He was very active in uh, O'Connell's repeal campaign. Uh, he was also very active in Father Matthew's temperance campaign. I believe I am not prejudiced towards England. If you cast aside the multitude of the political crimes perpetrated by her rulers, I can look upon her literature, can admire her social institutions, and do homage to the genius of her many illustrious children with alacrity. But when I look upon her in connection with Ireland, my indignation outruns my judgment. He was a, a small man. He was, I think, he was only five foot three. He wasn't a particularly handsome man, but he was a charming man and a very eloquent man and a, a good speaker and a good writer. He was just on the cusp of emancipation at that time. He was uh, very Catholic in one sense. In, in his youth, he was very Catholic, uh, so much so that he joined Father Matthew's Temperance League with, with his father and was very, very anti, anti-alcohol. Uh, one of the ironies, of course, is that he became an alcoholic in later life. As a young man also, given his involvement in Young Ireland with John Mitchell and people like that, he was also anti-British. And again, one of the other ironies of McGee's life is that towards the end of his life, he was very, very pro-British. Already we are beginning to see some of the contradictions and about turns in McGee's life. He was a powerful orator and political agitator who learned from two great role models, Daniel O'Connell and Father Matthew. Father Matthew was a very iconic figure. He travelled the whole country. It was a mass movement, so I think Darcy McGee might have been caught up on the mass movement, and uh, it was a good way of getting to people as well. And Matthew, of course, uh, travelled the whole country, even up here in uh, Donegal, and he had ways of attracting people. He was a great talker, a great orator. Alcohol abuse was causing all sorts of problems in Ireland, as Donegal historian Sean Beatty explains. Alcohol uh, was slightly different from what we know today. It was actually fortune making, and of course it was an industry and people use the money from fortune making to pay the rent as a source of income. So there was a sort of financial incentive <laughs> involved in, in getting drunk and, and having drink. And of course, uh, the fortune making then was uncontrolled and was evading tax. And because tax was being avoided, the government then cracked down on it. So from about the 1830s onwards, the, the, the making of fortune was very seriously punished. And the, the army was brought in, they raid houses and raid farms where they thought fortune was being made and they harassed people. It, 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 was a, it was all tied up with the economy and with drinking and with oppression by the authorities as well. But it wasn't just sort of ordinary drinking as we know it or social drinking. It was fortune making and it was quite an evil and it was doing untold damage. During the mid-1800s, Daniel O'Connell used peaceful means and mass meetings to get greater freedoms for Irish Catholics. He achieved Catholic emancipation in 1829, which allowed Catholics to sit in Parliament. O'Connell continued to use these methods in his campaign to repeal the 1800 Act of Union. Darcy McGee's growing reputation in America as an orator and writer was also being noticed at home. 
O'Connell was very impressed with him, and uh, he was invited to go back to Ireland to become a journalist with the Freeman's Journal. You have to remember that uh, he's barely 20 years old at this stage. McGee returns to Ireland in 1847, but, as David Wilson and Anthony Russell explain, he becomes disillusioned with O'Connell. Events in Ireland and Europe convince McGee that a different approach is needed. Uh, but the Freeman's Journal and uh, O'Connell wasn't for him. He was more spiritually, politically and culturally aligned with the Young Ireland Movement and the Nation newspaper. And he joined them. He became its editor for a while. Again, he wrote books on cultural nationalism. Uh, he was a constitutional nationalist at this stage. He believed that Ireland had the right to rebel, but the circumstances were not propitious. He continued with that view during the early stages of the famine, although uh, the famine he found extremely distressing, as did the other young Irish leaders. The event that re-radicalised him, in a sense, was the 1848 revolutions in Europe. But at the same time, the famine was raging, and young Ireland, moving through Ireland, looking at what was happening, were appalled by it, and it was a great stimulus to the 1848 rebellion, the affair in the Cabbage Patch in Ballingarry, the famine rebellion. McGee himself, oddly enough, hasn't written that much about the famine. Even when he was escaping in 1848 through Donegal, he didn't write that much about what obviously was going on around him at that time. The one great thing that can be attributed to McGee, it was he who coined the phrase coffin ships. He actually called them sailing coffins, but by the time it got into common uses, they were known as coffin ships. So like all of the young Irelanders, he wrote about the famine, particularly when they were in Dublin. But they were a middle-class organisation, and the famine had most impact upon the two million cottiers and labourers at the very bottom of the social pyramid. So in a sense, geographically, they were removed from the famine because they were in Dublin, and socially they were removed from the famine because although they were appalled by it, they weren't going to actually be affected by it that much. And again, going back to Mitchell, when they assembled in his house along the canal to plan their rebellions and their political thinkings and writings, Mitchell described those as nights and suppers of the gods. So obviously they were having a good time socially and politically at the same time as the famine was on. Liberty is not a commodity that we can import in our ships or bring from France to order. It must root itself in men's hearts. It must nerve their arms in action and their step to take unfalteringly on the way to the gallows. It must circulate with the current of their blood or they are not fully free. Freedom, native freedom, can only be the work of native men. Before this year of 1848 is out, the Irish people are resolved to obtain that freedom at any cost. The young Irelanders may have been great writers and orators, but they were no soldiers. Sean Beatty. The young Irelanders were planning the rise in 1848. They were riddled with spies, and for that reason, the whole rebellion was doomed from the very, very start. It was never going to be anywhere. And then when the rebellion did take place, the government cracked down. And that simply led to a period of frustration. And some of the best leaders, like McGee, then were driven out of the country. And the great movement that moved on from O'Connell's time through the Young Irelanders, the post-famine optimism, all that was wiped out by the oppressive policy that the government produced, the coercion acts that came into being. Irish history is a very frustrating period after that rising of 1848. In 1847, McGee was working tirelessly, writing, making speeches, planning and organising on behalf of Young Ireland. However, he still found time to marry Mary Teresa Capri. She was about 23 when she married Thomas Darcy McGee. 
and it was a lifelong relationship. It was a, a lifelong love, and that wasn't easy for her for two reasons. One, he was an alcoholic, and that must have made life very, very difficult. He was also a migrant alcoholic because he kept moving, and she obviously had to keep moving with him. And the other reason it wasn't easy that their children died they, even by the time they went into Canada, they had already lost three children. So she had a very hard life. But her letters afterwards are very affectionate. And her, her memory of McGee when she writes her, these letters are very affectionate of her time with him. So it was a lifelong love that they had. Yeah, I love thee, Mary. My darling in the land of dreams of wonder and delight, I see you and sit by you and woo you all the night. Under trees that glow like diamonds upon my aching sight, you are walking by my side in your wedding garments white. The failed rising meant that McGee and his fellow young islanders were now wanted men and on the run. McGee made his way to Donegal, at one stage sharing lodgings with the unwitting magistrate who was haunting him. At Smoan Bay, Sean Beatty describes his escape from there. McGee originally had been involved in the rising in Wicklow and he had been in Scotland previously that trying to get guns and uh, he worked his way north, came up through Donegal town and he knew that Bishop McGinn was a nationalist-minded bishop. Not all bishops were, some of them were what they called castle bishops but McGinn was very much in favour of the nationalist movement and he was a high-profile figure as well and McGee got in contact with him. McGee then was advised by Bishop McGinn to go to Caldaff and meet the parish priest there who was sympathetic and he ordered the cassock and he arranged then with the pilot at Balahari called McCann to bring him out to a ship that was en route from Derry to America. McGee was a, he was a character who could um, assume various disguises. Very often people didn't know who he was. So he, he would have met all sorts of people on his way up from bishops to magistrates to uh, police and all the rest of it. But he, he managed to, to weave his way through them successfully, uh, acting with disguise. The same way as he disguised himself on board ship. He was travelling to America pretending he was a priest. He escaped with a price on his head and he was wanted for treason. And when he arrived in the United States, he proudly and defiantly described himself as a traitor to the British crown. And he very quickly set up his own newspaper. Um, he preached the gospel of revolutionary republicanism. He was in all but name a Fenian in 1848 and 1849. Now, the Fenians don't come on the scene until 1858, but all the central tenets of Fenianism had been expressed by McGee in 1848-49. So we have him now uh, established as one of the most militant figures in the Young Ireland movement, the Irish rebel. McGee spends the next nine years in the US, writing, speaking and moving to stay one step ahead of bankruptcy. He founds and edits the Nation newspaper in New York and the American Celt in Boston. Well, when he got to America, he was still radicalised, still very anti-British, still very pro-physical force Republican, but he was appalled by what he saw there. The growing numbers of Catholic Irish in the US at this time are not welcome. McGee is appalled at their treatment and becomes disillusioned with US society and US-style democracy. The Irish competed, the Italians, the Germans, particularly the black man, in a multiracial society. And he thought that the Irish got a very bad deal. He rejoined the Catholic Church. He became an ultramontane Catholic. He also then had the bright idea that it would be a good idea to move the Catholics out of their slums onto the prairies. But he became very disillusioned with the United States. It is the highest duty of a Catholic man to go over cheerfully, heartily and at once to the side of Christendom to the Catholic side and to resist with all his might 
the conspirators who under the stolen name of liberty make war upon all Christian institutions. McGee is now seriously questioning his political beliefs, something that brings him into conflict with old comrades such as John Mitchell. The relationship between McGee and Mitchell is a fascinating one because they were friends in 1846 uh, to early 47. And McGee dedicated one of his books to John Mitchell. The first falling out came in late 1847 when Mitchell was moving towards a revolutionary position in the context of the famine. And McGee was arguing against this. McGee was in a majority here among the Young Islanders. He was arguing against it, saying the time is not right for a revolution. They came together again after the French Revolution because it seemed that now external circumstances and the internal horrors of the famine were converging to create a revolutionary situation in Ireland. But when McGee uh, subsequently drew the lesson from the failure of 1848 that an armed rising against the British was unwinnable, then Mitchell and McGee diverged completely, a divergence that was accentuated by McGee's movement to conservative Catholicism. Although the two former comrades were now on opposite sides, they still shared some beliefs. There's also, in a very unusual sense, uh, a parallel between Mitchell's career and McGee's career. Because one thing they have in common is that in the 1850s they were thoroughly alienated from northern U.S. society. Uh, they both thought that the United States was a moral cesspit. And you read McGee and Mitchell um, on the United States and you find they condemn it for its corrupt politics, its lax morals. Uh, what McGee does is go to Canada, which he sees as a much more stable and prosperous society. What Mitchell does is go to the South and embrace the values of the South, including slavery, to the point at which his own sons are killed fighting for the Confederacy. And Mitchell was not just pro-slavery, he was, in classic Mitchell fashion, one of the most pro-slavery people in the South. So you do find a common antipathy to commercial northern US, but it expresses itself in radically different ways. McGee moves to Montreal in Canada and sets up the New Era newspaper, which he would use to further his political career and changing ideals. 1857, he went to Canada and thought that although the Irish Catholic migrants were in competition with the Orange Order and to some extent with the French Canadians, he thought that they could have a much better deal in Canada. From that stage then, he started to become very pro-Canadian. He was already anti-United States, but he also looked at the Union Jack flying there. And as Professor Wilson says, he looked at the Union Jack and saw that it cast no shadow. From that then, he started developing his ideas of a northern nationality, a Canadian nationality where all the disparate groups would come together as a Canadian nation, which of course appalled anyone from an Irish Republican point of view, and he was identified as a traitor. Thomas Darcy McGee would have experienced a number of things that were different from the United States. First of all, he would have experienced a parliamentary democracy as opposed to a republic, and still very, very strong ties uh, to the crown on both sides of the river. When I re refer to the river, it's both uh, uh, the French side and the English side of the river. Professor Mark McGowan from the University of Toronto has researched and written extensively on the Irish Catholic experience in Canadian history. 
The other thing that he would have noticed is that there were prominent places for churches, unlike the separation of church and state. There never has been uh, a separation of church and state in Canada. So he would have arrived in a province that, on one side of the river, on the, on the western side, the Anglican Church, formerly the Church of England, would have had a very, very strong role socially, uh, as would have the Methodist Church by the 1850s. On the other side of the river, the Roman Catholic Church, although not an established church, certainly was the political and social force uh, within that province. Politicians who wanted to be successful, who were French-Canadian, would have to be, in many ways, mindful of what the bishops and clergy uh, were interested in politically. McGee quickly realizes that Canada is a very different place to the United States, a place where Irish Catholics are treated better and have more opportunities. He believed that land was the, the passport to prosperity for his fellow countrymen. And he sees that most Irish Catholics in Canada do not live in cities, are not trapped in ghettos, are not experiencing squalor and degradation, but are actually doing pretty well as modest farmers, and that most of them are fairly content with the political system, despite the dominance of Orangism in Canada. He writes at one stage, Orangism in Canada isn't the same as Orangism in Ireland. And then he adds, except on the 12th of July, of course, when they all go mad. <laughs> now, for someone like Thomas Darcy McGee, coming to that kind of environment after experiencing you know, some of the worst anti-Catholic bigotry in the United States would have been quite startling because he would have noticed that because of the position that the church had, his children could be educated in Catholic schools that were state-supported, something completely unheard of in the United States because of separation of church and state. He would have seen religious processions, for the most part, in majority areas, be unmolested. Now, that wasn't to say that there wasn't sectarian tension in the Canadas. There were particularly in a city like Toronto or Kingston in Canada West, now Ontario. And one of the key agents of Protestantism was the Orange Order, which on the western side of the river was a very powerful social institution. He finds a great degree of liberal Protestantism in Canada, and he finds in Quebec a place where Irish Catholic priests are respected and indeed revered. And this is very congenial to him. An opportunity is presented to him in Montreal to start up his own newspaper. That's where his children, as he puts it, can be educated away from false systems of religion and politics, by which he means Protestantism and Republicanism in the United States. In December 1857, a few months after arriving in Montreal, McGee is elected to the Legislative Assembly and joins the Reform Party. He works hard in the interests of his Canada West constituents, particularly the Irish Catholics. He was a very gifted politician, uh, so an orator, a poet, a politician, a journalist. But it's often assumed that because you're good at such things, you're not good at the practical questions of life. One of the things that became clear when he went to Canada was that he was very good on details, that he spent hours and hours in committee work doing the kind of thing that does not attract much attention, like reorganizing the Canadian census, um, working on improving agricultural development, better uh, facilities for immigrants, those kind of practical things that uh, occupied a lot of his time and attention. Uh, he was very skillful at that as well. McGee believes in the Canadian political system, while his own policies and beliefs are still evolving. However, not for the first time, 
he finds himself at odds with his political allies as the Reform Party refuses to back the schools bill. The political system in Canada, although it was particularly Toronto, very, very orange-dominated, he saw a chance for development. For example, he wanted them to develop their own schools, and he saw that within the Canadian system they could develop their own schools, and eventually Macdonald, of course, agreed to that. In his youth, he saw the Orange Order just as a bigoted organisation that he could have nothing to do with. In Canada, he then started to see that there were more liberal members of the Orange Order that he could work with, and therefore he left the Reform Party and joined Macdonald's uh, Conservative Party. He saw that although there was ethnic rivalry in Canada, he saw a potential for improvement that he didn't see when the Irish were in the slums of New York and Boston. And the fact that he could work with the Orange Order in Canada and him, at this stage an ultramontane Catholic, yeah. was particularly interesting to think. It was, but he was very fond of the term unity and diversity. And he saw Canada as a confederation, not only a confederation of the various provinces, but a confederation of the various groups that made up Canada, particularly the French, the Ulster, Protestant English and the Immigrant Irish. He saw that a united Canada would emerge from that, and it did. McGee was developing the concept of what he called a new nationality for the Canadian provinces, which became the policy of Canadian Confederation. He moves very quickly into a position that he retains for the rest of his Canadian career, supporting Confederation, saying that the atavistic elements of Irish life must not be injected into the new world, that the extreme forms of nationalism and orangeism should have no place in Canada, that here was the potential to create a society that could be everything that Ireland could have been but wasn't, a place where Protestants and Catholics uh, can get on reasonably well with each other, where they can have their differences but respect each other by acknowledging those differences and by not trying to impose their will on the other, where French Canadians and English Canadians could work together, where people of different races, as they would put it in the 19th century, could all find a modus vivendi through compromise, through accepting pluralism, having a tolerant, open society. And that vision remains consistent throughout his Canadian career. But one of the interesting things is that vision is virtually identical to the vision he had for Ireland when he was a young Irelander before he became a revolutionary. So in a sense, he goes right back to the beginning. And what he could not achieve for Ireland, he believes he can achieve for Canada. McGee becomes the Minister for Agriculture, Immigration and Statistics in the Conservative government. Moving from the Reformers to Macdonald's Conservatives lost McGee's support among many Irish Catholics, but he was able to forge some unlikely alliances. Because of the positions he took constitutionally, he became very unpopular among the radical nationalists who were Irish, and certainly because of his ultramontane Catholicism, the Orange Order was skeptical, but politics is the art of the possible. And so you see McGee move from the Reform to the Conservative Party, and the Conservative Party is this really interesting amalgam of Anglo-Protestants, supported in some cases by large numbers of the Orange Order, and by some Irish Catholics. And here he is in this very unusual coalition that's really quite unique in the British Empire. And that means that he has to develop, as do they, um, that art of compromise. And I think that's one of the things that made Canada work, where you had disparate elements with very different visions of the country who had to hammer out ways in which they could move forward together. 
And I think Udi was a great architect that way in seeing the possibility that a multi-religious, multicultural Canada uh, could be. His famous speech where he likened Canada to the shield of Achilles with all of these peoples that would be bound together in common cause. Very powerful image for Canadians who know about it even today. We Irish men, Protestant and Catholic, born and bred in a land of religious controversy, should never forget that we now live and act in a land of the fullest religious and civil liberty. All we have to do is, each for himself, to keep down dissensions which could only weaken, impoverish and keep back the country. McGee saw the potential of Canada and believed it could only be achieved through unity or confederation. But he was also aware that this potential was under threat from several sources, both internal and external. His concern was that American values, American attitudes, American beliefs would seep into Canada or that the United States of America would annex Canada. So for defensive purposes, uh, as well as for political purposes, it was essential, in his view, for Canada to become united and politically close to Britain, not dependent on Britain, an equal partner with Britain in the empire, to resist the Americanization of the country. McGee firmly believed that only a unified Canada could stand against the expansionist United States. In one of McGee's most famous speeches on Confederation in February of 1865 in the Canadian Assembly, uh, he said, the United States have coveted Florida and they took it. They coveted New Mexico and they took it. They've coveted one place after another and they've taken it. And unless we are vigilant, we will be next on their list. So that was a very real fear that he had indeed. The United States had been preoccupied for several years with a bloody civil war, with thousands of Irishmen fighting on both sides. When it ended in 1865, the following year a new and more familiar menace emerged. When the uh, civil war was over, then the Fenians realised that they had a large pool of trained soldiers from both the Confederacy but especially the Union Army, and they decided that they would invade Canada, which they did and they had a, an initial success at the Battle of Ridgeway. Although they retreated, the Fenians got credibility out of the Battle of Ridgeway. When the Fenians took the position that Ireland could be liberated on the plains of Canada, that a Fenian-based invasion of Canada from the United States could trigger an Anglo-American war, that England's difficulty would become Ireland's opportunity and that the folks back home would be inspired by military victories of the Fenians in the United States. When all of that took place, there was for McGee the very real danger that Fenianism could become allied with American annexationism in a powerful force that was designed to defeat Canada militarily and pull it into the United States politically. Faced with these threats, McGee redoubled his efforts to help secure Canadian Confederation, which was achieved on the 1st of July, 1867. But his actions meant that former comrades, like Mitchell, were now his sworn enemies. McGee was one of the most hated men in Republican circles in Ireland, the United States, and indeed Canada. And he was hated because 
He had once been a rebel himself, and now he turned against the Fenians with a vengeance. And he turned against them for a variety of reasons. He felt that Fenianism was immoral as a secret society. As a Catholic, uh, he was opposed to secret societies. He believed that Fenianism was immoral on the grounds of just warfare, that in Ireland their campaign for revolution could not succeed. And also, he felt that if in Canada, Irish Catholics became tarred with the brush of Fenianism, they would be the victims of a massive loyalist backlash and that none of them would get employment, none of them would be treated fairly. All these things combined to drive McGee towards an uncompromising hostility towards the Fenians. And precisely because he was such a formidable opponent of the Fenians, he was detested by them. They, the authors of a liberation of Ireland, why don't they liberate the Ireland at their own doors from the poisonous and murderous surroundings of the tenement houses of New York and Boston? Why don't they liberate their own young Ireland from sanitary destruction? Why don't they try to liberate the Irish labourers in New England, where they rank in the social scale below the Negro and hardly above the beasts they drive for their Yankee bosses? The new Dominion of Canada was less than a year old when it was rocked by its first political assassination. On April 7, 1868, shortly after 1am, McGee left Parliament Hill after a late sitting walking to the boarding house where he stayed by an Ottawa. As he was turning his key in the lock, McGee was shot in the head and died instantly. Thousands attended his funeral in Montreal a week later on what would have been his 43rd birthday. But not everyone mourned the death of McGee. In 1878, on a visit to Montreal, O'Donovan Rosso went up with a couple of Montreal Fenians uh, to McGee's mausoleum in the Côte de Neige Cemetery. O'Donovan Rosso said in front of the mausoleum, I remember that Darcy McGee once wrote a poem in which he said, if ever he deserted the cause of Ireland, he deserved a dog's death. Well, deserted he did, and a dog's death he got. Within 24 hours of the assassination, police arrested James Patrick Whelan, whom they assumed to be a Fenian. In his pocket they found a revolver, which had recently been fired. Whelan was tried and found guilty of the murder of McGee, although he maintained his innocence to the end, and it was never proven that he was a Fenian. Whelan was hanged in front of a crowd of 5,000 people, the last public hanging in Canada. The exhibition here in Carlingford is, as far as we know, is the only permanent exhibition to Darcy McGee either here or in Canada. We think it's quite a good exhibition. One of the artefacts that we had was the pistol that Whelan was carrying when they arrested him, therefore presumably the pistol that killed Thomas Darcy McGee. Anthony Russell is our guide in the Thomas Darcy McGee Museum, which is based in Carlingford Tourist Office, the town's old railway station. Children particularly like the gory side of the thing. The other thing that the kids like when they come in is the imprint of his hand. McGee was shot through the back of the head. There could be no face mask, but because he was a great writer, they took an imprint of his hand. And there are only three of those in existence. One is in the Bytown Museum in Ottawa. The other is in the Darcy McGee pub at the end of Spark Street in Ottawa. 
and the third one is here in the cabinet before us and we're delighted to have it. Um, the other thing over there on the wall is the poster for the hue and cry for the man who killed Darcy McGee and you can see it's very nicely framed and so on and that was sent over to us by the Canadian National Library and Archive so we're very very pleased to get that. As part of the exhibition you've got the audiovisual display. We do, we have three audiovisual things here in what used to be the station master's office. We have a video of McGee and Mitchell battling it out in the rotunda in, in Dublin and probably having listened to it you realise just how vehement the argument between the two was but it also points out that after the 1848 revolutions in Europe, they became friends again. So that tries to show how they were divided and then they came together to have a rebellion. The exhibition is divided into two parts. The northern part is Darcy McGee, the Irish rebel. The southern part is Darcy McGee, the Canadian patriot. And both films, there's a film of, of Darcy McGee, the Irish rebel, and there's a film of Darcy McGee, the Canadian patriot try to get that dichotomy between the two sides? Yes, the, the exhibition is purposely divided uh, into, uh, and that's why it's called Ari uh, Darcy McGee, Irish Rebel, Canadian Patriot. There are certain items as well here from his personal life, um, from Mary Caffrey, his wife. There is indeed. We have his christening rope, which is a fantastic thing to have, as you can see it's beautifully displayed there because of sponsorship from the people who give us this wonderful room, Carnifoot Heritage Trust. We also have from Pat Brown, a descendant of Matilda Mitchell, it was John Mitchell's sister, McGee's History of Ireland, which was in the Mitchell family. Very important because as McGee was thinking of developing the Canadian nation, he always had Young Ireland at the back of his mind and he knew how important literature was in the development of a nation. And he said Canada must write its own story. And over in the corner, we mentioned O'Donovan Rossa. We have O'Donovan Rossa's pipe. Very significant because it was owned by Thomas Clark, the first signatory of the proclamation and it even has the burnt tobacco still in it if you go over and have a look at it. But again, very significant for us because Rossa is that link between the Young Ireland and Padraig Pearce rebellion. And because he went to the McGee mausoleum and said what he said, then it's a very appropriate artefact for us to have and we are delighted to have it. And what about visible reminders of McGee in Canada? Mark McGowan. There is a statue behind Parliament Hill of Thomas Darcy McGee. There are a number of pubs in the Ottawa area <laughs> named after McGee. There are a number of Catholic schools named after McGee. But I would hazard a guess that many of the students going to those schools really wouldn't appreciate whose name they bear upon their sports uniforms when they go out to play. But in death as in life, McGee divided opinion, even when it came to that statue. David Wilson. Orange man in Canada had divided views over McGee. Some felt that he was the right kind of Irishman, if you like, and others felt that once you were a traitor, you were always a traitor, and they remembered that he described himself as a traitor to the British government in 1848. They remembered that he had once written a poem describing the Union Jack as that bloody rag responsible for so much devastation and destruction in history. Uh, they remembered that uh, he was a devout Catholic. There's an interesting story about the statue of Darcy McGee, which you'll now find behind the Parliament buildings in Ottawa. It wasn't going to be there initially. It was going to be in the centre of Ottawa, the place where the war memorial is now. But the Orange Order in Ottawa objected to having someone who had once described himself as a traitor to the British government being honoured in this way. And there was a long back and forth over many years before the compromise was to have a statue to McGee 
but to have it out of sight, out of mind, behind parliamentary buildings. It is true I was a rebel in 48. I rebelled against the misgovernment of my country by Russell and his followers. I rebelled because I saw my countrymen starving before my eyes, while my country had her trade and commerce stolen from her. I rebelled against the church establishment in Ireland, and there is not a liberal man in this community who would not have done as I did. If he were placed in my position and followed the dictates of humanity. Compromise and inclusiveness were central to McGee's political beliefs. He's a politician that discovered the art of the possible and had a vision for the country where uh, building bridges and alliances uh, was the way to move forward. As an Irish Catholic in both a Protestant world and a French-Canadian Catholic world, he became an, an interesting bridge. I think he could be remembered as one of the forerunners of Canadian multiculturalism. It's very difficult to talk about a single legacy of Thomas Darcy McGee because um, he was remembered in different ways at different times by different people. Immediately after his assassination, a group of young Canadian nationalists who called themselves Canada First drew on his ideas to develop a Canadian form of imperial nationalism in which Canada would become uh, an equal partner within the British Empire with equal status. And that was for many years the dominant strand within Canada. But Irish Catholic politicians around the turn of the 19th, 20th century adopted a rather different McGee. They viewed McGee as someone who did indeed want Canada to become more independent, but independent from the empire, not to become an equal member of the empire, but to have equality with the empire while having a significant degree political independence. As a father of confederation, I think he stands out in a couple of ways. Certainly the way in which he tried to affect justice for minorities in terms of educational rights, uh, the collective rights of religious groups should be respected. The other thing that McGee should be noted for in terms of the whole confederation debate is his uh, terrific oratorical skills. He was a brilliant tactician on the floor of the house. He was very articulate in public. He was of great humor. And he also managed to piss a lot of people off, particularly Irish radical physical force nationalists. But I think as a father of confederation, his art of compromise and his art of, of the word will really be remembered. As we are hearing, McGee's legacy is difficult to assess. It really depends on your ideological viewpoint. Ireland's former ambassador to Canada, Ray Bassett, played a key role in the Good Friday negotiations, and he sees parallels between McGee's philosophy and peace in Northern Ireland. There are parallels in the sense that it's necessary to accept differences. The fact that he felt that, that there was a constitutional way forward, which I think virtually every party now in the North of Ireland accept, I think that's the lesson for us, the lesson to move away from confrontation, from violence, and the lesson to accommodate peoples. The French Canadians essentially were defeated in the conquest, and he spoke to English Canada and said, English Canada's got to be generous to French Canada, and French Canada have got to accept that the English Can Canadians have every right to exist in Canada. It didn't mean that he was trying to turn them into a single homogenous group, but that they've got to accept that French Canadians were going to be French Canadians, English Canadians are going to be English Canadians. In Northern Ireland, loyalists were going to be loyalists. 
are unionist, Republicans, national government, uh, Republicans, nationalists. But you have to accept that and let's learn to live together in a society based on respect for human rights. Darcy McGee put forward the idea uh, that we have to learn how to live with each other. We're not going to convert each other, but we have to live and accommodate our differences. And we have to do it in a way which preserves the dignity and the equality of people. So I think it did have lessons in the negotiations for Good Friday. And those lessons were, as I say, listen to the other person's point of view and try and accommodate them as much as possible. And that the acceptance of difference is not a threat to your own identity. The Canadian ambassador to Ireland, Kevin Vickers, is proud of his Irish heritage. At one time, he was the sergeant at arms in the same building where McGee was minister. The vast majority of people I've met in Ireland have not either heard of him or didn't learn about him in school. So he's kind of an unknown figure here in Ireland. Where in Canada, he's quite celebrated. He's without a doubt one of our most important fathers of confederation. He was a leader and a catalyst in Canada becoming the Dominion of Canada. I think that there's a word that can describe his life after he arrived in Canada. It would have been one of respecting the dignity of people and being inclusive. Ireland can be very proud of the fact that uh, one of their own was a very strong champion for the reputation that Canada today enjoys of its multiculturalism, its acceptance of people, Canada took in over 30,000 Syrian refugees. That philosophy and that spirit of openness and inclusiveness, that all goes right back to the origins of our country and Thomas Darcy McGee was certainly part of the foundation of that. You know, other than our Aboriginal people who are Indigenous to Canada, we all come from somewhere. Ray Bassett has no doubts about Ireland's debt to Canada. I sound like a broken record, but I think in Ireland there is not enough appreciation of our links with Canada and our long history with Canada and the fact that in times of troubles, whether it was the famine, whether it was in 1920 as we were setting up a state, whether it was during the peace process, whether it was during our recession, Canada has been a country where we could always look to and always get a positive answer. The problem with the Canadians is they tend to underplay their help and their associations, unlike some other countries. And I think because of that, we sometimes underestimate it. So I'm absolutely delighted that the Darcy McGee Foundation has been established, which will celebrate those links and help to bring home to the people of Ireland how close we are to Canada, our immediate Western neighbour. Thomas Darcy McGee's life was short but complex, filled with drama, purpose and radical shifts in politics and ideology, from Irish rebel to Canadian patriot. He referred to this in a speech in Wexford in 1865. You will remember that I spent the years from 1842 to 1845 in the United States, and that I was one of the Young Irelanders in 1848. I'm not at all ashamed of Young Ireland. Why should I? Politically, we were a pack of fools, but we were honest in our folly, and no man need blush at 40 for the faults on one at 20. Unless, indeed, he still perseveres in them, having no longer the fair excuse of youth and inexperience. As far as the Fenians were concerned, uh, McGee remained persona non grata. McGee is still hated to this day among Irish Canadian revolutionary republicans, and indeed, insofar as they know about him at all, among Irish revolutionary republicans. So that legacy continues too. In Ireland as a whole, McGee was forgotten very quickly 
He was not, after all, on the 1014 train pulling out of Clontarf, ultimate destination, independent Ireland. He was not part of the nationalist narrative. He didn't fit in. He was completely ignored. Am I remembered in Erin, he once asked. The short answer is no, not much. <laughs>